Returning to the program is Stephen J. Harper. He's been on our, this show many times talking about, uh, well, his, his prior creations, which include the insurrection timeline, the pandemic timeline, and the Trump-Russia-Ukraine timeline, which are available at BillMoyers.com. He's authored several books, one of which we spoke with him recently about, uh, Crossing Hoffa, a Teamster Story. He's an adjunct professor at Northwestern University Law School and um, a guy on top of a lot of things that we want to talk about. So we're happy to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen J. Harper. Thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure to be here. There's a lot going on right now with the Supreme Court and other things in, in politics. The first query I want to throw at you is a follow-up on something we talked about uh, at, at some length many weeks back, the debt ceiling. There's been a lot of news about it right now. Things are going back and forth. I don't, I don't quite understand it. What, what, what's going on? The first thing to remember about the debt ceiling is that the whole thing is a, it's a, it's a red herring issue. The money that's involved that people are now fighting about and calling the debt ceiling limit that we're hitting are funds that Congress, on a bipartisan basis over many years, has authorized and appropriated and is to be spent. And the, all the debt ceiling does, it's a, it's, a, it's a law that is routinely increased to allow for the fact that, well, we've authorized all this money to be spent as, as the federal government, Congress in particular, uh, signed by the president. So we better make sure that we have enough borrowing power uh, which is the way the Treasury then funds the government expenditures, combination of tax receipts and, uh, and selling bonds. And that means you have to raise the existing debt limit in order to accommodate previously authorized expenditures of the federal government. And j- just as an aside, this is never an issue when the Democrats are in control of Congress. Right. This only becomes an issue when there's a Democratic president and a Republican control of either the House or the Senate. Yeah, the Republican-controlled Congress had no problem when Trump wanted to raise it. Three times Kevin McCarthy voted to raise it. Never a squeak. (laughs) Trump added trillions of dollars to the total debt. So now it's all of a sudden it's become a big issue, and McCarthy and his caucus, over which he has a very tenuous hold, is saying, well, we're not going to do this unless you take a look at future expenditures in the budget. And we want to find places where in the future you'll cut stuff, draconian, dramatic, drastic cuts. And only in return for that are we going to raise the debt ceiling in a way that allows the federal government not to be in default uh, on its obligations that it has already incurred. And oh, that's yeah. the stupidity of it. So in essence, what you, in spite of the headlines, it's all really a whole lot of nothing. Well, it's a lot of nothing except that if, in fact, the debt limit is not increased, uh, there will be global chaos. Almost certainly, according to various uh, economist estimates, plunge our country into a recession, possibly a severe one. It'll wreak havoc on the global markets. It'll call into question the what has always been the unquestioned confidence that the world ha- has in American U.S. Treasury bonds and America's willingness to to pay its bills. So it has tremendously dramatic consequences. It's simply a hostage-taking by McCarthy and his extremely slim majority in the House. So the clock is still ticking for, what, the summer when when it may hit the wall? The latest estimates from Secretary Treasury Yellen is could be as early as June 1st. Wow. They're already doing stuff. We hit the technical limit earlier this year. So they're doing what are called extraordinary measures, taking extraordinary measures, deferring certain payments into federal pension funds with the expectations that they'll eventually make them up. 
according to some estimates, if you can make it to June 15th, when, when there's another big slug of quarterly estimated tax payments due to be paid by individuals and corporations into the federal government, then you might be able to, to go a little longer, you know, into June and into early July. But wow. right now, the first week of June could be very, very tough. Wow. You'll be watching it closely, and so will we. And we'll... No, you won't miss it. I, I won't even have to watch it. You, you, you won't miss it. If there's a default, <laughs> <laughs> you won't miss it. Yeah. There'll be a big puff of... <laughs> All right. Well, there's another. Uh, there's some other headlines surrounding um, we need to talk about. That fun couple, Jenny and Clarence Thomas, have generated quite a bit of news lately. Let's talk about that. Oh, my goodness. We could spend the entire program on the Clarence and Jenny Thomas scandal. Um, and the uh, I don't know if you saw it. There was a recent uh, Frontline program on PBS that went for uh, 90 minutes or two uh, or two hours. I can't remember um, uh, on the various. Uh, oh, I did various, not. I'll have to check that out. Oh yeah, you want to you got to take a look at it. It's 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 pretty good. The the interesting thing about it, you know, what's in the headlines now? It's almost like a Trump redux. You know, the deal with Trump always was he had this scandal. And then there'd be some new thing that would displace the old scandal that would be even worse so that you'd forget about the earlier scandal. And it's sort of, that was sort of the way he operated. And I think that's kind of what's happening with Clarence, although I don't think he's orchestrating these things at all. One of the early scandals, Clarence and Ginny Thomas, was Ginny's extraordinary role, very active role, in exhorting Trump and, and all the people around him to stop the steal. You know, she was repeating the false conspiracy claims. Her text messages that leading up to January 6th are stunning. You know, it's been two or three months since those were released, so people have forgotten some of the things that she had to say in exchanges with, with uh, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Just step back and think about this for a minute. This is the, the wife of a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in text messages with the president's chief of staff urging the chief of staff to hang tough. There are efforts underway to overturn the election. Just hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. I'll give you an example, because I think people need to remember this stuff. She said that Sidney Powell, I don't know if she's lost her law license yet or not, but was one of Trump's leading conspiracy claimants. I I don't even call them conspiracy theories anymore, because they're just not theories, they're just false. She she wrote that Sidney Powell will help the cavalry come and fraud exposed and America safe. Ginny wrote, the Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators Elected officials, bureaucrats, social media, censorship mongers, fake stream, media reporters are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now. And over the coming days, they'll be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. Otherworldly stuff. Wow, that's vivid prose. This is a good one. She wrote to, to Meadows, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. Here's my favorite on November 24th. This exchange between Ginny and Mark Meadows. Thomas says, I can't see Americans swallowing the obvious fraud, just going with one more thing with no frickin' consequences, the whole coup, and now this. To which Meadows responds, now this is the chief of staff to the president of the United States. Evil always looks like the victor until the king of kings triumphs. Do not grow weary in well-doing. The fight continues. I have staked my career on it. Well, at least my time in D.C. on it. To which Thomas replied, thank you, needed that, this conversation with my best friend just now. Now, she didn't say in the text message who the best friend was, but when she testified ultimately before the January 6th committee, 
she acknowledged that she and Thomas, Clarence Thomas, refer to each other as their best friends. It's one of the ways that they refer to each other. Um, and she said, yeah, this, this, this looks like my husband. But she denied to the committee ever talking to him about court cases or, or her contacts with Meadows. But now here's the punchline. When, when you get to February of 2021, one of Trump's phony vote fraud cases reaches the Supreme Court, and, this, and the court refused to hear it. But there was a written dissent. And guess who wrote the written dissent and said we should hear that? Clarence Thomas. Yep. And he was the lone dissent in January of 2022 when the Supreme Court ordered the Trump White House to produce insurrection-related documents. The only dissent came from Clarence Thomas. People wonder why has the confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court declined from where it typically has been historically, which is 60 to 70 percent approval. Now it's down into the 40s. Well, what a surprise. And, and speaking of Clarence, what about this, his good buddy, the millionaire that's paying for his nephew's college and do, uh, doing all sorts, so all sorts of curious things? Oh, Harlan Crow, yeah. Luxury vacations valued at about 500000 bucks. His grandnephew, for whom uh, Clarence Thomas was a, his legal guardian, apparently, Harlan paid for private boarding school expenses amounting to $100,000. And Harlan bought Clarence Thomas's mother's home, which Thomas owned for $133,000. And this is a problem because there is no code of ethics for the U.S. Supreme Court justices, but they're still bound by law. And Thomas did not report that sale, probably in violation of the 1978 Ethics and Government Act. And oh, by the way, his mother still lives there in the house that Harlan brought. Leonard Leo, the different one, not Harlan Crow. Leonard Leo, who was running the Federalist Society and has been engineering the the rightward shift of the federal courts for years, he managed to funnel a $100,000 assaulting fee to uh, Ginny Thomas. None of this was disclosed. Do we have any recourse over all of this? I mean, they keep saying, well, you know, we got to have a code of ethics and they don't have one, blah, blah, blah. But isn't non-disclosure a criminal act? No. It's not? Not typically. I mean, not unless it involves an actual transaction that comes within the scope of the Ethics and Government Act, and then you have, then you have a potential issue. As I think about all this, the Clarence and Ginny Thomas show, two things sort of come to mind immediately. One is that these are two very angry people, angry and in some ways broken. You know, if you look at the text messages, if you, if you read the, or even just read the, listen to the excerpts from Clarence Thomas's book that are profiled in Nightline, his, his autobiography, this is a combination of, of anger and I think Vendetta, you know, a year after he was confirmed in 1992, he told two of his law clerks that he intended to serve until 2034, which would give him a 43-year term. And one of the clerks asked, why 2034? And he said, well, the liberals made my life miserable for 43 years, and I'm going to make their lives miserable for 43 years. That's the spirit. <laughs> A year later, in, a, in an interview with People magazine, uh, Ginny Thomas said that Clarence will give everyone a fair day in court, but I feel he doesn't owe any of the groups who opposed him anything. I mean, what can you do? Sounds like you can't do much of anything. No, you can't. And, and this is why there's been a hue and cry from lawyers you know, across the spectrum, and particularly from academics. One of my good friends, emeritus professor at Northwestern, was one of the, the very first people to say, look, the U.S. Supreme Court needs a code of ethics. 
not necessarily because they're doing anything wrong, but because that's what you need in order to retain the confidence of the American people in the U.S. Supreme Court. All the other federal judges have to abide by a code of ethics, and the Supreme Court needs one, too. Right now, they don't have one. The Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade from last year, is still reverberating all over the country. And and giving, I think I think you said when we talked about this last summer that uh, just wait till next year. If you think that's bad, let's go back and review how bad that was. I mean, you, you talk about how bad history went into it and, and bad law went into it. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's one of the flaws of so-called originalism in constitutional interpretation. It, it creates a license for judges, and in this case, Justice Alito, to essentially pretend to be historians and dis- completely distort the actual history of what happened in order to suit, in this case, an outcome that he wanted to achieve. I'll give you an illustration. One of the main historical texts that he relied on was from the Middle Ages, the 13th century work of a guy who was a famous misogynist who said things like, women differ from men in many respects for their position is inferior to that of men. Those born of prohibited intercourse are fit for nothing. People say, well, gee whiz, you know, the, the conservatives on the Supreme Court are taking us back to 1950. No, no, they're not. They're taking you back to the Middle Ages. <laughs> and then from there, he mustered uh, what he thought were cases and authorities from the 1600s and the 1700s and concluded incorrectly that there wasn't any authority that remotely suggested a positive right to procure an abortion, which is just flat out wrong. And uh, to her credit, Justice Kagan uh, called him out on it and, and said that, you know, he was embarrassingly wrong in simply reading the plain history of what was common in those days. And the question is, why would that even matter? This would be like citing uh, the Magna Carta. This predates the U.S. government's founding uh, in its present state circa 1789. So why was he bothering? These are the perils of, of originalism. They're trying to discern what the original intent of the framers of first the Constitution and then the 14th Amendment, what they had in mind when they used certain language in the Constitution so that the exercise that they're supposedly engaged in as justices now is trying to figure out from the, the text of the Constitution what can we find, what can we learn from the history of what was happening then about what it was that the framers had in mind. And it's absurd. Yeah, I suppose it's only a matter of time before they resort to seances. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> I had a vision the other night. James Madison came to me in a dream. It's hard to know where to begin. It's terrible history. I think almost any historian would say, you got to be kidding me. You know, that's what originalism is. It's an excuse for judges to pretend they're historians. It's terrible law because it completely overturns 50 years of settled precedent in ways that all of the justices who voted to overturn Roe v. Wade had sworn during confirmation hearings that they would respect and not overturn. And it's terrible law because it's the first time in the jurisprudential history of the U.S. Supreme Court that they've actually withdrawn a right as opposed to expanding rights, uh, whether you're criminally accused or any number of other areas that you want to look at. This is the first time they've taken one back. And it's a big one. And you can see, it, it, you said it was reverberating throughout the country. Reverberates the right word because it's hitting on both the liberal and the conservatives, right? Because the red states, they're all going after now essentially contraception. Right. Some people think birth control is the next, next on the uh, chopping block. 
Sure. Well, that's the concern. I mean, this guy in Texas is is got this this ruling. You know, had made this ruling that would take off take off the market. You know, one of the most commonly used day after pills. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, it's uh, but but it is mobilized. It is mobilized. I think. Uh, well, you can see what happened in the in the midterm elections, it, and you can see what's happening in some of the referendums that uh, citizens were able to put on in their on their, in up for amendment to their, to their constitution to preserve the women's right to choose uh, how to use her, what to do with her body. Um, so it's you know it, it, it's it's you don't know where to begin. It's the and, and the irony, of course, is all of this is a is a is an illustration of the extent to which we, as a country, live under minority rule because the vast uh, majority of Americans, at least to some degree, at least you know whether it's for rape, incest, or the health of the mother, or you know any number of other factors, uh, that abortion, uh, uh, that is to say, a woman should have the right to terminate a pregnancy. Um, up to a certain period of her pregnancy. Um, vast majorities are doing that. But you see what's happening in, in red states all over the country. They're cutting it back. You know, Florida, what are we down to now? Six weeks? Uh, um, you got to get your, no abortion after six weeks uh, or 12 weeks. And, you know, women don't even know whether they're pregnant no, uh, that, they that, no, soon, no, that no, soon into no, a pregnancy. Not that early stage, That's right. That's um, right. Well, you we have a no, of course they don't. No, not at not at not at that earliest stage generally. Um, well, you, the, we have a minority rule in America under issues that the, the public would not agree with, and things like women's rights. Uh, and we already mentioned the debts, the debt ceiling. And let's let's talk a little bit about voting rights, which are under assault. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, if you if, you know, all the polls say that people, by a very wide margin, want voting to be easier. It's sort of an undisputed popular proposition. But all you see across the spectrum uh, are efforts by Republican legislatures to make it more difficult for people to vote. In particular, make it more difficult for the people who are not likely to vote for them as Republicans. And the case that's currently pending in the Supreme Court deals with that issue involves Al- Alabama's gerrymandering in a, in a Voting Rights Act case. Let's talk about what's going on in Alabama and the case Moore versus Harper. No relation. Thank goodness. Involving <laughs> North Carolina, and, uh, and and how these these are two blockbusters. Yeah, they for sure are. I'll distill it in this way: Alabama redrew its maps after the 2020 census so that only one district had a 55 percent black voting age population, and they drew the map. So that all of the other districts had fewer than 30 percent of a black voting age population. Why is that significant? The, the result of, of the drawing of the maps is that there were seven districts. Only one was a majority black district, but black Americans constitute 27 percent of Alabama's population. So the federal court said, you know, you can't do that. You've got to redraw the map at least create another majority black district. Which would be proportional to have at least two, yeah. Yeah. And the state said, well, uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to take this thing up, the Republican legislators. We're going to appeal that because what you're now asking us to do is discriminate, hold your breath now, on the basis of race (laughs) to create another black district. 
if that isn't turning the voting rights act on its head mm. by stripping the act of its ability to consider race or people acting under the act to consider race and making things equal, where do you begin? And one key question raised by this case is whether the Supreme Court will complete what has been its gutting of the Voting Rights Act that began in 2013 when uh, the court eliminated just narrowly the requirement of the Department of Justice to approve voting changes in states that had a history of discrimination. The list included Alabama, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia. If you're a lawmaker in those states and you wanted to change the voting requirements in those states before you did, you had to get them past the Department of Justice, who would look at it under the Voting Rights Act and say, yay or nay. The law had been reenacted as recently as 2006, and in the intervening seven years, the Justice Department had rejected 31 efforts to change the voting process in those affected states. But in 2013, Justice Roberts wrote the, the majority opinion and essentially said, oh, you know what, our country has changed. Any racial discrimination in voting is too much, and we got to make sure that we do the best we can, but the remedies, the problem should speak to the current conditions. Because, as he said, you know what, everything's changed. Yeah, he's living in his own bubble. When he says that, I think back to when I was a boy, when you were, when you were a boy, and uh, before the Voting Rights Act, when down in the old Deep South, blacks just didn't vote. Well, you know, I think I may have mentioned this before on your show, but Justice Roberts was a classmate of mine at Harvard, and we both studied law under Lawrence Tribe, the emeritus professor of constitutional law. Uh And uh, uh, Professor Tribe, uh, many, many years ago, when Stephen Colbert hosted the Colbert Report, had Professor Tribe on the program. And Roberts had been on the court for a little while, and, and Colbert asked him, so Professor Tribe, you know, I understand that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, was in your class. How do you explain why his decisions are the way they are? Because you're more liberal in your outlook on things, and some of his decisions don't seem to square very well with uh, what you would say the Constitution requires, to which Tribe responded, well, to be honest, I don't don't think he got very much out of my class. (laughs) Worst case scenario, with Roberts leading the charge, the current court might decide that you can't, race is not a factor. You can't be even considering it as you're d- drawing up districts. Yep. My own personal prediction is that Alabama is going to lose that one. Um, but you're right. That, that's the, that is the worst case in terms of the way that, that one could go. And while we're talking about race-conscious uh, matters, the Harvard-North Carolina race college admissions test uh, case is up there, too. And I think that is going to be, that case, I believe, will be the end of, of affirmative action. Right now, race can't be determinative, but it's a permissible factor. Um, and I think that the court could very well, in the case that's pending before right now, conclude, rule that it's not even a permissible factor, much to the chagrin of, I think, almost every college and university in the, in the wow. country. Wow. Well, we should forward promote after these decisions come down, you need to come back and, and we need to recap uh, wh- where we stand. The thing that scares the hell out of me, and we've talked about it, I think, on the show, and I've talked about it many times, even when you weren't here with me, about is, is this independent state legislature case, the Moore versus Harper case. Yep. In worst case scenario, the court would rule that state legislatures have unchallengeable right to choose the electors that, that pick our president. Now, my understanding is you don't think they're going to go that far. You, don't, you think that's, that's not likely. Right. The, the technical issue before the court 
is whether or not the courts of a state, not the federal court, the, the courts of a state can review legislative actions that result in gerrymandering or whether once the legislature does whatever it wants to do in drawing federal districts for purposes of congressional elections, the state courts have to keep their hands off. They, they can't become involved in that. I don't even know how to begin to describe how far out that is from the mainstream of legal thought over 200 years. The notion that you would have a state justice system in which the legislature can do things, and it's the final word not subject to judicial review by the state courts in that state is absolutely contrary to the whole architecture of the constitutions in those states and to the United States Constitution. It's without any precedent in history or in the text of any of these states, uh, including North Carolina, which is where this case arose. Now, there's an interesting twist to this case, which is that the case was originally appealed to the Supreme Court by some Republican legislators who lost in the North Carolina Supreme Court. In other words, the North Carolina Supreme Court said, hey, you're out of your mind. Number one, this is a 2016 map. And, and number two, of course we can review what the legislature did. And they decided that on a four to three decision. A new map was used in 2022. And instead of 10 Republican seats and three Democrats, as a result of the, of the census in 2020, North Carolina picked up another seat and another district. So the end result after the 2022 election were seven seats for each party. And given how thin the majority uh, is in the House, given how close the Republican and Democrat, uh, Democratic situation is in the House, you can see how critical two or three states in a handful of states would make an enormous difference. You know, what if Kevin McCarthy had a 10 or 15 person majority instead of a two person majority? I just found out recently from, from you and reading, reading the news, the North Carolina Supreme Court had a change in its makeup and, and they, they reviewed the case, surprisingly. Yes. So in November, uh, although the congressional, the congressional elections came out, you know, roughly 7-7, Republicans picked up uh, two seats in the North Carolina Supreme Court, which elects its uh, Supreme Court judges. So instead of a 4-3 Democratic majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court, it flipped to 5-2 with a Republican uh, majority. So the North Carolina Supreme Court reheard the case earlier this year and in a 5-2 vote reversed the earlier order of itself. I have to ask, on what grounds did they review the case? Gee whiz. Oh, let the, let the Republican legislators asked them to. Oh, nice. That was the ground. That was okay. it. And they oh, said, nice. you know what? Okay. Uh, we think the earlier ruling that the gerrymandered map was unconstitutional under North Carolina's constitution. We think that one, we, that, was a, that was an incorrect ruling. Yeah, why don't you take a look at that again? Yep. yep. So uh, <laughs> the gerrymandered map is okay. But here's the interesting thing. Now, so, so it's entirely possible that on that basis, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court will say, you know what? We think this is moot because there's not really anything that's going to change as a result of whatever we rule in this case because the old map is back in effect. What's wrong about that analysis, and one of the most prominent Republican uh, jurists in the country, uh, J. Michael Luddick, has written on this extensively recently. He was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court under George W. Bush in the George W. Bush administration. 
He said, no, look, even the new North Carolina Supreme Court said that it had the power to review what the legislature had done. It simply came to a different factual conclusion. So the Supreme Court should still resolve the issue. I have a hunch that the U.S. Supreme Court specifically asked for a briefing on the question of how the the new North Carolina Supreme Court ruling affects their case. I have a feeling there's a there's a pretty decent chance that they'll 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 take the the sort of the slim way out and and say you know what we we're not going to deal with this we think it's moot because the the old map is back in effect and whatever we do isn't going to change that. I, I dearly hope that you're correct and the, and the terrible precedent is not set, but I was stunned to, to note in a news item from, I don't know, a week or so ago, that a look back at some of the um, memos that had gone forth in the wake of the 2000 election show that at that time when they were trying to decide whether to stop the vote count that would have made Al Gore president, that Rehnquist, Scalia, and, and Thomas were then talking about this independent state legislature theory, and I guess Kennedy and O'Connor steered them away from that, but they were actually thinking about this 23 years ago. Well, that's right. It's been hanging out there, but it never got any serious traction, really until Rehnquist sort of mentioned it in passing in, a, in an opinion in Bush v. Gore. Well, it hinges on a, a number of incorrect premises, but the most important uh, rhetorical hook is this notion that the Constitution says specifically the legislature prescribes the time, place, and manner of election. But legislature back in those days referred to the entire legislative process, not simply the legislative branch. And the framers were very, very concerned and didn't trust state legislatures, which in those days <laughs> still are, I guess, highly political which is why it reserved for itself the power for Congress to determine the regulations that were relevant to federal elections. Stephen J. Harper, always a pleasure, sir. Again, thank you for educating us about uh, things legal. Well, I'll tell you what, when you come back in the not-too-distant future to recap what goes down in in June slash July, let's let's throw in a little uh, addendum about Bush v. Gore and also Citizens United. Sure. Whenever the hammer falls. All righty. We are again out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll uh, we'll see you soon.